This evening, for our time in the Word, we're going to be looking pretty much devotionally at Isaiah chapter 12. So I encourage you to take your copy of the Bible and turn to Isaiah 12. I read through this portion earlier this week, and it was just really a challenge to me personally, and I thought I would share that this evening with you. There's a lot of things in life that make us joyful and happy. Um, For some of us, it's when our sports team wins. Um, For some of us, when our sports team doesn't win, it's not a very joyful joyful or happy moment. And unfortunately, I think I'm guilty as charged when it comes to some things like my hockey team that I follow. They haven't been doing so well lately, and sometimes my joy is tied to whether or not they're doing well. So hopefully that's not you. But there are a lot of about as I was thinking about joy and expressions of jubilance and happiness is that a lot of times it is attached or or connected to something that we have experienced. So for some of you, you love birthdays and you love having a party for your your birthday or maybe you're you know a kid or a teen in here and you love it when you have a get together with your friends and they celebrate your birthday and you're joyful and you're happy because it's tied to a circumstance that's celebratory. Uh, For me, I really enjoy sports, and so when my sports team wins, I get really excited because my excitement is attached to some kind of event or experience. A lot of times, our joy is an expression of what's in our heart based on an experience that we had. And before us is a text in which we see joy expressed because of what God had done and would do, so it's tied to an event It's tied to an experience. And I believe that it's instructive for us as we look to how we as Christians can express jubilant praise to God. Because ultimately, that's what I want. If you ever follow the ministry of John Piper, you'll know that he has a saying and it's tied to um, his ministry of desiring God. But he wrote a book called Desiring God, and a lot of it is spent on expressing joy and how we as Christians can overflow and express joy in spite of the negative experiences that we have. Because a lot of times, our joy or our happiness is tied to the experience that we like. It's a little harder to express that joy when the experience is not something we particularly enjoy. I really resonate with that. I think that there's every reason as Christians for us to be happy, to be joyful, to be jubilant in our praise to God. And I think that Psalm, or Isaiah 12 is an excellent example of what that looks like. So what I want to do is read all six verses of Isaiah 12, and then I want to share with you quickly seven ways that our jubilant praise to God should manifest itself. So let's begin by reading the text. Isaiah chapter 12. In that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Shall we pray together quickly? 
Lord, we are grateful to you for giving to us every reason to rejoice and have, have an experience joy in spite of whatever the experience may be, whether it be the highest mountaintop or the lowest valley. Help us to express our praise in the same way as this prophet did to the praise of your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Seven ways that we can drink from the well with jubilant praise and how our praise to God should manifest itself. Number one, it should be humble praise. It should be humble praise. The f- I'm going to jump down to verse 3 before I begin and say that this phrase especially caught my attention. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I believe Isaiah, in the course of the first 11 chapters of his book that he's been writing, is talking particularly about the judgment of Israel. And so when he, at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, says, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me, essentially I think what he's referring to is the previous 11 chapters, which frankly is kind of indicting. Jewish people had nothing to be excited about because they had no reason to be excited. They, they were rebelling against God, they refused to follow him, and yet he opens up in verse 3 in particular saying, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, it can be easy for us to spiritualize this, and we will in a moment, but ultimately I think Isaiah is referring to the salvation that Israel would experience in the future. Because at this point, Isaiah is giving, given this prophecy to, to proclaim to the Jewish people, and the prophecy is this. You guys are in trouble. You refuse to obey me. I will pour out my judgment upon you. You will be scattered abroad, and one day I will return you again to myself. Well, it wasn't a very exciting prophecy for them to hear. But here, this deliverance that Isaiah prays about is that deliverance that they were looking forward to. That God hadn't just abandoned them. He hadn't said, well, you know what? I made all these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I made all these promises to to David and to Solomon. But you know what? At this point, I'm ready to just kind of scrap the whole thing and start over again. That's not what the Lord did. The Lord promised them deliverance, and this was something that they were clinging to, the future deliverance that God would give to them. In some ways, we do have that joy as well of a future hope of deliverance. Because as we've been talking about in our Sunday school class with the teens, we're going through, as Christians, this life laden down with sin. And we have every resource available to us to live it rightly, but we won't live it perfectly. None of us will. And so we are looking forward to an ultimate deliverance one day when there won't be any more sin to deal with. There won't be any more sadness or sorrow. What I think is interesting, though, about Isaiah's praise here, as he is writing down what God says they will sing to them one day when God delivers them, is he will say, oh, Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me. If somebody in a position of authority like God himself is looking down on his people and he expresses anger to them, do they have anything with which to to barter with him or bargain with him about their life or their existence? Certainly not. They've got nothing to bargain with. Their only hope is that God would be merciful to them. That even though he would express judgment on them, he'd show mercy. And ultimately, Isaiah 12 is an expression of praise because God is saying, I will. I will express mercy 
and kindness to you, which leads to humility on our part. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Jesus Christ, all throughout his ministry, when he was talking about people who were doing their religious duty, as it were, whether it be giving alms or whether it be praying, he was indicting the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were saying, don't be like them, because when they're about to give their alms, they're, they're sounding the trumpet so everyone knows they're about to do this. And when they're praying, they want everybody to know that there will be a great oratorical prayer that will be some said in the presence of all of these people, and so come and listen to this great orator pray. And Jesus indicted them and said, that's not the way of a follower of God. When you give your alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go into your closet in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Instead, Paul says, have the mind of Christ, a mindset of humility. And that humility will say, I don't deserve the kindness of God. Though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. Humble praise. This entire hymn of praise, if you will, from Isaiah 12 is really an expression of humble praise because the Israelite people recognize they don't deserve it. Number two, I think that we see a trusting praise. This is what he says in verse 2. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I won't have to fear. I will trust what God has said. Imagine being the Jewish people, hearing the prophet coming to them and say, saying, you are about to be overrun, you will be overthrown, and you will be delivered one day, but, one, but it won't be until you've experienced this judgment. Well, I would imagine that those Jewish people would question one of, the, one of those two statements. Either, am I really going to be judged, or will I really be delivered? And most of them, when they experience the captivity and the, the attacks of the Babylonians and the subsequent empires after the Babylonian Empire, probably were wondering, is God actually going to deliver us ever? We've been waiting and waiting. And so here this, this prophet says, one day you're going to sing a song and your song will be this, I will trust and not be afraid. As a Christian, your life has been an expression of faith or trust in the promise of God found in Christ. Your hope ultimately rests in what God has said about who Christ is and what he has done. Our praise as Christians should not just be a humble praise because God should be so gracious and kind to us sinners, but it also should be a trusting praise that you say, Lord, I am clinging to Jesus Christ in this moment and I express my praise to you because I have no other hope. Number three, a confident praise. A confident praise. When he says in verse four, in that day, you all, all of you Jewish people will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. And then back in verse 2, for the Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. This confidence that the people will have when they see not only that God judged them, but that God delivered them from the judgment. It will produce a confidence in them that everything that God has said is true. 
when I was preaching for the singing team for Maranatha, one of the texts I ended up choosing to preach from was Psalm 130. It became precious to me. The team kind of made fun of me because I would preach that. I, I led two summer teams, and I preached that sermon for both of those summers. So they could almost verbatim quote the sermon back to me. And, uh, and so I tried to mix it up a little bit. But there was a reason why I always preached that one. And it's because, one, it talks about the future deliverance, the praise that Israel would have as they looked forward to the day when Israel would be delivered. And ultimately how it was an expression of trust and confidence that motivates our trust and confidence now. So why I say that? Back in Isaiah's day, there was a prophecy given. A prophecy given about a child who would be born of a virgin. And that child would be called Emmanuel. The people of Isaiah's day were not positive, necessarily, if that would actually happen. Because if you're any sentient person, you know that a person who's a virgin doesn't have a kid. So it's almost as though God is doing some kind of miraculous thing and he's doing so in a way that's almost unbelievable. So the people of Isaiah's day looked forward to the fulfillment of that prophecy and they had to do so with the eyes of faith. Here we are 2,000 years later and we see that promise fulfilled. A child born in Bethlehem to a virgin named Mary and that that child grew and displayed who he was as the Son of God through his miraculous works, through his wondrous teachings, ultimately culminating in his death on the cross and rising from the dead three days later. The fulfillment of what they saw by faith, we see because we have a book that declares it happened. If they could believe those things having not seen those promises fulfilled. Can we not express the same thing in the promises that God has given to us that have yet to be fulfilled? Can we praise with a confident praise because we see the promises of God in the past fulfilled even as he said they would be? And that motivates us confidently to praise him for the promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Promises like the second advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Promises like the reality of being in the presence of God for all of eternity. Promises that one day there will be no more curse and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more crying, but that there will only ever be eternal joy and happiness and bliss. Things that we look forward to but we haven't seen yet. Can we not, like the people of Isaiah's day, look forward with eyes of faith, confidently praising God now, for the things that he will do in the future. Number four, our praise should be a joyful praise. And again, this is something that I just feel very strongly about personally. In verse three, he says, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. As Christians, we have every reason to experience joy. The, the Jewish people that Isaiah is giving this hymn to that God is, is giving through his prophet to his people that one day they will sing. God is saying, you will be delivered and it will produce in you this experience of bliss and joy. They will with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Should not our praise be the same? Shouldn't it? We of all people have every reason to experience great joy. Jesus told his disciples, I am giving my joy to you so that your joy might be full, not partial, not tied to a specific circumstance, but that in all circumstances you can rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. But I think that joy ultimately is tied to salvation. For even here in verse 3, even though the deliverance or salvation he's talking about is that future deliverance of Israel, ultimately you could say the exact same thing about your spiritual deliverance in Christ. That you were in the slave market of sin, you are under the judgment of God apart from his grace, that you have a mind that's alienated from God and doesn't want him, but ultimately, one day, God's grace infused life and light into you so that your eyes were opened and you saw the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace that you received by faith you embraced and you were given a joy that cannot compare, a joy that's incomprehensible. So with joy, you as a Christian drew water from the wells of salvation. Should not our praise be joyful? We have been delivered. Imagine that you had some kind of experience, uh, just so for example, last Sunday when I was talking about the Alamo. Imagine if the people of the Alamo had been delivered. The men who were giving their lives for the freedom of Texas, imagine if they had actually been delivered. I think their response would have been joy. I think our response shouldn't be any less than that kind of joy when we have been spiritually delivered from the bondage of sin through the power of Jesus Christ. If we as Christians are not known as joyful people, I think that there is something wrong from the well we're drinking from. Because our well of salvation should do nothing less than produce joyful praise in us. That doesn't mean we'll always be happy. That doesn't mean there won't be tears or sorrow or sadness. Some of you in this room are experiencing it. You know what it's like to sorrow and grieve. You know what it's like to sorrow over the loss of a loved one. You know what it's like to sorrow over the struggle with sin that you're experiencing. We all know that. But ultimately, we should be people who are expressing jubilant praise and joyful praise at that. Number five, our, our praise should be an overflowing praise. In verses four through six, essentially it's an invitation for all of the Jewish nation to proclaim this joyous exaltation and praise in Jesus Christ for us as Christians. In verse 4, he says, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion. I mean, the invitation isn't just for you individually. It's for all peoples. Our our praise to God shouldn't just be this private worship experience. A lot of times I wonder if that's what I do when I come to church. I come here and I want to get this personal worship experience where I come and I hope I like the songs that we sing and I hope I like the special music that I hear and I hope I like the offertory that is played and I hope that the sermon sure does sound good and is accurate because I want it to be entertaining and keep my attention it's such a personalized worship when in reality we as Christians are called to overflow in praise to other people. 
I think that's one of the reasons why we as Christians have every right and expectation to answer the questions that people have about the Christian faith. Because they're going to look at us and they're going to say, something's weird about those guys. They don't have a normal response to the highs and lows of life. It's almost like they're more stable. For so many people who don't have Christ, their lives are not stable at all. It's tied to their circumstances. And so when they're at the highest high, getting the highest paying job, have a great experience with their family, or in the lowest low where they have not gotten that raise or they are experiencing some kind of turmoil within their family or their friends or their personal life and poor decisions they make, that is where their joy is tied to and their reaction to people who wrong them and is to fight right back and defend yourself. Here as Christians, our responses are supposed to be the opposite. When Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, When a centurion, a Roman soldier, compels you, as he has the legal right to, to carry his cloak for a mile, you do the opposite of what he's expecting. You carry it too. When somebody smacks you in the face, you do the opposite and you turn the other cheek. Those who wish to be first will be last. Everything Jesus said and taught was the opposite of what the world expects. I don't know all the time that if the world were looking at my life, they would see the opposite of what the world expects. And that's to my shame. I think that's to all of our shame. Instead, my life should be different. And one of the ways it should be different is that my praise for God should be obvious. It should be on my lips. It should be proclaiming to all peoples. That's part of what the gospel is for us as Christians when we evangelize. I'm going to somebody and I'm telling them the good news To all people, that's my goal, to proclaim a message that they will want to hear, that they need to hear. That my praise for God and what he has done for me is an overflowing praise. It overflows into others. What are you doing to demonstrate that here at Calvary? In what way is your life an overflowing of praise? When you're passionate about something, you make time for it, and it's on your lips. That was something my mom always told me, is you make time for what you love. And nothing could be truer about that than what we speak about, right? I speak often about things that I enjoy, and because I enjoy them and they're important to me, it's going to overflow in my conversations with others. I'm passionate about my hockey team that I like to watch. And so I speak of that, and then Laura, for Christmas, gives me a Stanley cup, not the Stanley cup, but a Stanley cup, with the Minnesota Wild on it. Because she knows that the overflow of my expression of joy and excitement over a hockey team has led to me speaking of it and experiencing it and talking of it to her and to others. And she knows that that's important. Could that not be said of us when it comes to our walk with God, when it comes to the salvation we have joyfully drawn water from, the wells of salvation? Could we not overflow with our praise? Does it overflow? Obviously. And does it overflow to other people? I said there were seven, but there's actually six because I can't read Roman numerals. Number six in the last one, exultant praise. Our praise should be an exultant praise. Not exult like E-X-U-L-T, but exult, E-X-A-L-T. And here is, again, in verses four through six, what essentially the prayer and praise of the Jewish nation will be. 
In verse 4, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted, lifted up, made much of. We will put on a pedestal the things that we want to be seen by all peoples. Why do you think when you go to certain cities, there are certain skyscrapers with people's names on them? They want to be high and exalted and lifted up so that all peoples everywhere can see it. When Isaiah, only chapters previous, six chapters before this, sees God, it says, I see the the Lord high and exalted, high and lifted up. Here, the Jewish people, one day when God delivers them from their oppression of the pagan peoples, they will say, God is to be exalted. They will not say, wow, we were worth it. They will not say, well, he finally did the right thing. They will say it's all about him. We will make much of him. We will exalt him. Unfortunately, our lives can be so inwardly focused that our praise to God isn't an exultant praise. It's not a praise that lifts him high, that brings him above all other things. It tends to be a praise that is either a lip service or at the very least something that's done out of duty. But I think one of the things I've really appreciated about reading some of the reformers from the 15th century and reading some of the Puritans is that they had this passion in them to see God exalted amongst all peoples. Should that not be our praise as well? A praise that lifts God high and shows all people just how highly we view him. When you have something that you treasure in your home, You put it in a place of prominence so people will see it. For some people, it's pictures of their family. Traveling on summer, singing Team for Maranatha, I've seen all kinds of different homes and home decor styles and the things that that people do when they are putting together their house and heard so many different stories. But one of the things I could always do is I could kind of get a gauge for what the family was like or the person was like that we were staying with. For example, we stayed at a house in a gated community in Las Vegas, me and three other unmarried guys on our team, we stayed at this house, and when we drove in, it, it was this guy who was a bachelor, had never been married, and to this day, I don't believe he's married. He, was a, he flew for drones for the military, and he lives in this gated community. His house was huge. He's the only one in it, and when you walked inside, it was like the classic bachelor pad. Like, there's this gigantic room, but just one sofa right in the middle of the room, <laughs> and one, one TV right there. I mean, you could see that. And then you go to others, and we would stay in an older couple's home and hear pictures of their kids and then their grandkids, and in some cases, their great-grandkids all over the wall, prominently displayed. Why? Because that is the place that is exalted in their house that they want all people to see. Should not our lives, the wall of your life, be a display of the exalted nature of God? That we, have a, that we view God in an exalted, a place of elevation where we see and make much of who he is. When we come to the word of God, I hope that the sermons are helpful. I hope that they are challenging to you. But most importantly, I hope you come away with a higher view of who God is. Because ultimately, that's our goal as Christians, is to know God and love him and exalt him and lift him up and make much of who he is. That's what this praise 
of the Jewish people one day would be. And I believe that these are illustrative of us as Christians of what our praise should be as well. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given to us every reason to jubilantly praise you and to lift up and magnify and make much of who you are. That the walls of our lives would be decorated with our view of Jesus Christ. That one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I pray that that would be our exalted view and that our lives would be a display of jubilant praise for the salvation that we have received and drunk from and drew from as Christians. And for those times in which we have not given that kind of praise to you, I pray, Lord, that you would give to us by the power of your Holy Spirit a joy that is unshakable, unquenchable, and that expresses itself in jubilant praise to you so that all people might see the reason for the hope that lies within us as Christians. We praise you for the joy we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.